Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Jack Bradley, in for Stephania Cox. Here are today's top stories. Former President Trump is now in Miami. What to expect as he faces another historic arraignment tomorrow and what his supporters are telling us. How is Capitol Hill reacting to Trump's second indictment? Some say it demonstrates that the most powerful must be held accountable. Others say that the law is not being applied equally. J.P. Morgan has agreed to pay a record settlement amount to Jeffrey Epstein's accusers. The bank was sued for allegedly working with Epstein while knowing that he trafficked young women. Ukraine is in the middle of its long-awaited counteroffensive against Russian forces. Ukraine reports new gains made in recovering territories captured by Russia. It will take months before the section of Interstate 95 that collapsed in Pennsylvania gets repaired. Officials are warning of major delays and disruptions to traffic in the area. Following an unprecedented federal indictment, former President Trump is in Miami for his Tuesday arraignment. Joining us live now on the ground is NTD's Iris Tao. Iris, what's the latest down there and what can we expect to see? Good evening, Jack. So here we are at the federal courthouse in Miami, which is where for former President Trump is expected to make his appearance on Tuesday at 3 p.m. for his arraignment. And actually, right before this, we went to Trump National Doral, which is a golf course under Trump's name, about 30 minutes drive from here. And that is where Trump arrived early this afternoon and where he will stay overnight before his Tuesday arraignment. So we did see his motorcade driving in there, along with, of course, pro, uh, supporters of Trump lining up on the sidewalk, waving flags at him. And one of them told us that he did manage to catch sight of Trump actually making a peace sign with his hand in his black SUV. So I did not get to see that, but we did talk to some of the protesters there who waited for literally hours under a baking sun just to see Trump for that one moment. And here's what they told us. I truly believe that uh, he's not going to be guilty of anything. And if he is, he's still going to win the presidency in 2024. More people are going to jump on the Trump train. They, they know he's going to come down on them. They're, they're terrified of him. And I think it's a very sad state of affairs. It's sad that the former president of the United States was indicted over a charge that could have been applied to anyone. We see very worried that what we're seeing here today is the agenda we saw in Venezuela. The first thing that they took away from us, which destroyed our country, was becoming hostage our institutions. So in less than 24 hours, former President Trump will arrive here at the federal courthouse to make his appearance. But we also know that the charges that he will be facing will not be clear until that hearing tomorrow happens. But we do know so far that according to the indictment document unsealed last week, these charges would potentially include allegations that Trump willfully retained classified information on national defense information, conspired to obstruct justice, as well as made false statements. But of course, as we just heard, Trump supporters, as well as Trump himself, are insisting that Trump did nothing wrong and that this is just another political wish hunt that's trying to stop him from running in 2024. And of course, Trump said that won't happen. He's going to stay in the race. So we are expecting to see an even larger number of supporters, as well as protesters here at the courthouse on Tuesday. And the Miami, the Miami police chief said earlier today that they will have officers employed 
place to ramp up the security ahead of the Tuesday arraignment, and they said that they will not separate the two opposing groups, which means that they could actually get mixed together. But again, if anything happens, the officers will be there. They said to maintain the situation and respond to any kind of things that arrive, that arise. Jack. Thanks, Iris. We'll be checking with you again tomorrow. And what's the difference between former President Trump's case and the classified documents case involving Hillary Clinton? And should Congress get involved? NTD's Melina Weiskup is on Capitol Hill with the details. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy's main point here, you could say is representative of what most Republicans are saying on this, that is that the law is not being applied equally. Many of them point to President Biden's case of classified documents and then refer to also Hillary Clinton's emails, which contained classified information. I asked, asked House Speaker Kevin McCarthy to specifically detail the differences here. Here's what he told me, and this is specifically in reference to Trump's case versus Hillary Clinton's. He said one took a hammer to their products, one took a body system, to bleach out the email. So they're going to see that's all with Clinton and then didn't get prosecuted for all those actions taken. Pair that with how Democrat Congresswoman and also Chairwoman of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, how she responded to the very same question. Take a look. I mean, there are a number of places where he was given an opportunity to correct the record. He did not. And he actually continued to lie. Now, as for whether or not Congress should be involved, here's what McCarthy had to say earlier today. I think there's a responsibility that to, to know, especially when the whistleblower has come forth when he said we shouldn't raid uh, Mar-a-Lago. Whereas strong Trump supporter Marjorie Taylor Greene wants to take it a step further, taking to the House floor today to say this. To defund Jack Smith's special counsel, his office and the investigation, but Congress has already acted in one sense. Chairman of the Judiciary Jim Jordan issued a June 16th deadline for the DOJ and the FBI to turn over documents related to the search warrant. He said he didn't classify this material. He can put it wherever he wants. He can handle it however he wants. That's the law. That's the standard. And Jack Smith can do all this 37 different counts or whatever he wants to do. I think Congress does have a role if the Department of Justice is specifically targeting a candidate. We need to see what's right's right. Wrong's wrong. We got a lot of issues there. Now, as for what we're hearing from House Democrats, they're calling this case serious and specific. Specifically, uh, Congressman Adam Schiff saying it's stunning in its detail and in the degree to which it shows so clearly Donald Trump's malign intent. That's also a point that's echoed by federal, former federal prosecutor and New York Congressman Dan Goldman. It's devastating and specific of an indictment that I think I've ever seen. So as expected, many Democrats are taking the stance, trying to make the case for why former President Donald Trump should be held accountable here, contrasting with the way Republicans are viewing this, calling it a two-tiered justice system. I do want to point out one thing, though. Many members who we asked for comment on this were hesitant to give a response, but perhaps that will change tomorrow when Trump actually appears in court in Miami. Reporting from Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. Congressman Andy Ogles has introduced articles of impeachment against President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris. The Tennessee Republican accuses the president of, quote, weaponizing the presidency to protect his family's business interests from congressional oversight and public accountability. He also criticized Biden's handling of the crisis at the southern border, calling his actions contrary to the public trust. Ogles also accused the vice president of, quote, extraordinary incompetence in the execution of her job. 
Earlier today, House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer said the FBI has more documents about Biden's alleged bribery scheme while he was vice president. The White House didn't immediately comment. J.P. Morgan, America's biggest bank, has agreed to pay the biggest settlement ever for a civil sex trafficking case. The amount hasn't been finalized yet, but the bank may pay $290 million to Jeffrey Epstein's accusers. NTD's Faye Quarter brings us expert legal analysis. J.P. Morgan has agreed to pay $290 million to Jeffrey Epstein's accusers. This settlement, if the court approves it, would be the biggest settlement ever for a civil sex trafficking case. The women who brought the lawsuit accused J.P. Morgan of continuing to work with Epstein even after he was convicted of a sex crime. They say J.P. Morgan basically facilitated Epstein's alleged sex trafficking and abuse, and that it even helped send money to his victims. J.P. Morgan and attorneys for the women said in a statement that the $290 million settlement is, quote, in the best interests of all parties, especially the survivors who were the victims of Epstein's terrible abuse. I think they wanted to get on the side of the angels here. And I noticed that their statement after the settlement, you know, to sort of join the victims, the plaintiffs who sued them, in their outrage at what this guy Epstein had done. Kevin O'Brien is a litigator at Ford O'Brien Landy, as well as a former assistant U.S. attorney. He believes J.P. Morgan is willing to pay this high price to make up for all the bad publicity it got. He also believes this will discourage other firms from doing business with criminals. $290 million sounds huge, but of course, for J.P. Morgan, it's a drop in the bucket. But for other entities it may really be huge. Meanwhile, others say the amount is too little. That's a person like me who has spent countless hours over the 20 plus years listening to girls, boys, men as old as 74 who have been injured by sexual abuse. If you listen to the hours that they have had to suffer, what I would respond is that that settlement is not high enough. Julie Saunders is a sexual abuse litigator at ASK LLP. She says the trauma that victims of sexual abuse experience impacts all the people around them. Victims have trouble functioning properly and may spread their problems to their children, making the trauma generational. Maybe to deal with those injuries, I become involved in some type of um, ill behavior or some addiction. And I then become a burden on my community. Maybe I will have to avail myself of government services because I can't navigate health, healthfully or with a healthy mind and body through, this, through uh, society. Meanwhile, J.P. Morgan did not admit to any of the allegations in its settlement. The court has yet to approve it and could potentially ask for more. Faye Quarter, NTD News. Ukraine said today it has seized a fourth village in the Donetsk region from Russian forces as it pushes south in its long-awaited counteroffensive. But recapturing the southern and eastern regions held by Russia will be a daunting task. Lucy Fielder has more. Ukraine says its troops have recaptured a fourth village from Russian forces in the southeast, where it has launched a long-awaited counteroffensive. On Monday, soldiers raised the Ukrainian flag in this village, confirmed by Reuters as Storozheve in a video posted online. This video, from a Ukrainian reconnaissance drone, is said to show the troops moving into Storozheve. But ending Moscow's occupation of southern and eastern Ukraine is a daunting task. 
Russia has more men, ammunition and air power and has spent months building defensive fortifications. On Sunday, Kiev said its forces heading south had liberated three other nearby villages in the Donetsk region. Ukraine's most rapid advance for seven months is short of a major breakthrough, though. Russia is believed to have a strong line of fortifications further south. President Vladimir Putin marked Russia's National Day on Monday with an award ceremony in the Kremlin. Appealing to Russian patriotism and praising, quote, the heroes taking part in the special military operation. Russia's defense ministry repeated its assertions of the past week that it has repelled attempted offensives in the Donetsk and Zaporizhia regions. But prominent Russian military bloggers confirmed the taking of three villages in Ukraine's push south. The latest gains would amount to three miles at most, leaving Ukraine's troops still some 55 miles from the Azov coast and the prize of cutting Russia's land bridge to the Crimean Peninsula, which Russia seized in 2014. Meanwhile, as swathes of southern Ukraine, including Kherson, remain submerged after a huge dam was destroyed last week, Ukraine's defense ministry said Russia had blown up another dam on the Mokryali River, aiming to thwart Ukrainian forces. Some Western military analysts say it is too early to draw conclusions about how the counteroffensive is going, and the skirmishes so far may show Ukraine is still testing Russian defenses. It's going to take some time to restore the section of Interstate 95 in Philadelphia that collapsed over the weekend. That's according to Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. He says local officials are working to get the road back to normal. But it will take longer than just a few days, which unfortunately will likely impact supply chain distribution in the region. This is not just about uh, commutes. This is also about supply chains, about 150,000 vehicles a day, uh, and uh, a good percentage of that is trucking. So uh, obviously for both uh, vehicle passenger traffic and for goods movement supply chains, this is going to be a major disruption in that region. To help with passenger congestion in the city and region, the Southeastern Pennsylvania Transportation Authority is adding extra capacity and service to several train lines. Meanwhile, Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro has signed a disaster emergency proclamation that gives state $7 million to reconstruct the roadway. Coming up, Fox News reportedly sending star host Tucker Carlson a cease and desist letter. That's over his new Twitter show. And billionaire George Soros is handing over his massive empire to his son, Alexander, who says he's even more political than his father. We'll bring you the details and what Alexander says about the 2024 presidential election after the break. Fox News reportedly sending Tucker Carlson a cease and desist letter. That's after Carlson's new show on Twitter drew millions of viewers. The former Fox News host reportedly received the letter after his news show's first two episodes got almost 170 million views. Axios reports that the Fox News letter to Carlson states, not for publication on the top of the page. Fox News reportedly still pays Carlson. The network apparently argues that Carlson's content remains exclusive to Fox through the end of next year. This would keep the host from reporting on the 2024 presidential election. In a recent interview with Lex Friedman, Mark Zuckerberg said that big tech firms were asked to censor COVID-19 misinformation 
that ended up being true and that undermines trust. Joining us today to dive into this is Jeffrey Tucker, Epic Times senior columnist, founder and president of the Brownstone Institute and author of Liberty or Lockdown. Jeffrey Tucker, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to have you on. That's yeah, a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So in a recent interview with Lex Friedman, Mark Zuckerberg said that big tech firms were asked to censor COVID-19 misinformation that ended up being true and that this undermines trust. So what do you make of this? Well, it's certainly right. But you know what's changed? Is that we've had lawsuits uh, pending for, for two years and discovery going on all the time and written endless articles. We knew this was happening. Uh, we've documented this. Court discovery has discovered this again and again. People still deny it. Uh, still. Uh, oh, you were never censored. Facebook never took down posts, you know, on behalf of the government or whatever. So to have Zuckerberg suddenly just come out and say, you know, openly and publicly what we've been able to uh, discover through uh, 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 the courts uh, is quite striking. And his excuse was just something like, well, we didn't we didn't really know. We just kind of trusted what the government told us to do. I mean, that doesn't that doesn't wash. I mean, the point is that they uh, leaned in on a narrative that was clearly false, and we knew it was false. Certainly I did. I mean, there were plenty of people that knew from uh, of March 2020 that what Facebook was was pushing was, was false. But there were a lot of victims. And he, that's the thing that was striking about Zuckerberg's comment. It was sort of like, oops, we made a mistake. But there were a lot of victims here. Uh, the biggest victim uh, of all was, was truth. Um, and and Facebook's actions, Zuckerberg's actions, really did harm the cause of human rights and and liberty, not just in the United States, but, but all over the world. So um, it was quite an ominous admission. And in one email in 2021, Zuckerberg said that the company was removing groups that con uh, contained often, uh, quote, often true content that can be framed as sensation, alarmist, or shocking. Uh, so what, do you, what are the consequences of censoring information that turned out to be true? One of the things that your viewers need to understand, we all need to understand, is that there's this term called misinformation now, and it's used in a very precise way. It doesn't mean false. It doesn't mean inconsistent with the facts. It doesn't mean untrue. What it means is things that you are not supposed to believe according to the government and its connected interests. That's what misinformation is. So if you say things that contradict the vaccine narrative or you know the the lockdown narrative or the masking narrative or whatever what it could be climate change doesn't matter whatever the regime is prioritizing that you dispute you'll be called a spreader of misinformation so this is a what's called a neologism which is to say a, a new word really we've never really had that in the west before but it really just simply means information that contradicts what the regime wants you to believe and what people need to understand is that um this movement to clamp down on what you can say and what you can believe is real. It's growing. It's getting more intense all the time. And the courts are adjudicating this right now. But even in the course of all this litigation, uh, venues like Facebook and LinkedIn and all the mainstream social media platforms are not stopping this. They're, if anything, uh, intensifying it. I mean, YouTube is taking down whole channels. Uh, uh, today, uh, based on what they consider to be misinformation concerning uh, uh, trans politics. Okay, so this this is the situation we are at in America. It's very serious. It flies in the face of the First Amendment, and it's extremely dangerous because 
you're being denied true information that could help you navigate the world and it's it's restricting our liberty so it's 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 panic time as far as i'm concerned and, and do you think zuckerberg's recent comments um will, will impact that ultimately my worry is that zuckerberg felt so i guess relaxed in saying this like he's openly admitting that he was violating the first amendment on behalf of the u.s government and saying this very nonchalantly like well Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. You know, we did it. Sometimes that wasn't correct. We probably went too far. Um, the fact that he felt so safe in saying that, it was a, like an aggressive violation of uh, constitutional rights, um, was a little creepy. You know, and let's not, you know, totalitarians admit that they don't get everything right, you know? <laughs> so, um, that's a normal sort of thing. But the fact that he felt like he could admit it without any consequence is what troubles me. I mean, what I keep thinking about here is like, how do we make change? You know, how do we restore free speech, especially in these mainstream platforms? And it's not obvious to me that, that there's a clear pathway, because even though the courts are all siding with the cause of free speech, you know, what mechanisms are in place to prevent a uh, person like Zuckerberg from being on the phone with Anthony Fauci and deciding who can speak and who can't. What's going to prevent that in the future? It's, it's not very obvious to me. Jeffrey Tucker, thank you so much for your time. Such a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Billionaire George Soros is handing over his financial empire. His son, Alexander, is taking over, declaring he's more political than his father. Here's what Alex said in the first interview after the takeover. Billionaire financier George Soros is handing control of his massive empire to his son Alexander. A Soros spokesperson announced the change on Sunday. 37-year-old Alexander Soros will take over the George Soros Foundation and the rest of the $25 billion empire. After taking over the empire, Alexander spoke to the Wall Street Journal saying about his father, We think alike, while adding, I'm more political. He also expressed concern about former President Trump possibly returning to the White House suggesting they'll support the Biden campaign to prevent that from happening. In his words, as much as I would love to get money out of politics, as long as the other side is doing it, we will have to do it too. Alex and his father share similar views on liberal causes such as voting systems, access to abortions, and gender equity. On Tuesday last week, before the takeover, Alexander visited Vice President Kamala Harris, posting this picture with her. Senator Marsha Blackburn commented on the visit, saying it's laughable that the left wants you to believe that the Soros family has no influence in politics. George Soros, originally from Hungary, often got into spats with Hungarian right-leaning President Viktor Orban. Orban repeatedly accused Soros of influencing Hungarian elections, for example, in this 2017 interview. They will support publications, do propaganda, strengthen civil groups, and pay hundreds or thousands of people. By election time, they'll establish civil centers, which will work like campaigning parties, meaning the Soros network has entered the Hungarian election campaign. Soros at the time said about Orban, He exploits and oppresses the people who are in the opposition in Hungary. I think the current system is more oppressive than it was during the Russian occupation. Alexander Soros says one topic he disagrees on with many on the left is free speech on college campuses indicating he wants more open dialogue. The S&P 500 is up 20% from its lowest point in October. This matches the definition of a bull market, well, at least according to some market participants. 
Goldman Sachs has now joined the growing list of market strategists who are increasing their year-end year's end five, S&P 500 targets. For more on this, NTD Business's Don Moss speaks to a financial advisor. And here to talk to me is Lauren Sprung, Midland Financial. Now, the S&P 500 being in a bull market, I, I think it achieved this a few days ago. Uh, with all the talks uh, of a recession, this dating back to last year, I mean, what's driving this? Is this strange to you? Uh, it's not strange at all, actually. Uh, there's a lot of evidence to support what we've been seeing over the last several months. And, you know, going back, looking at the last 13 bear markets, uh, most of them from the time we hit the bottom, which sometimes it's hard to tell what the bottom is, but for this, uh, you know, bear market that we were in, the, the bottom was October 12th. So right now, rallying off that bottom is not an uncommon thing. Typically in the last 13 bear markets, we've only retraced and backed down to those lows on two of those occasions. And those two occasions are during the financial crisis and the tech bust uh, in the late 90s, which, you know, stocks were, it was very difficult to be in stocks then. So this is not uncommon. It actually is more common than, uh, than not. I mean, how should we feel about uh, this, uh, this rally within the S&P 500? Uh, are, are recession talks behind us now? Is no recession? Well, I mean, I, I will tell you this, myself and those at uh, Carson Group who we're a part of have been saying for, uh, you know, since the beginning, since going back to October of last year, that recession may be unlikely. I, I know there's been a lot of talk about it, uh, but, you know, we, we've had the stance that we don't know if a recession is even going to happen. Uh, if it does, we think that it's not going to be, you know, anything that's going to be major impactful. You know, remember, when we started hearing hearing a lot about recession, the big impetus was that from uh, was that we were hearing about a lot of layoffs. And the reality was, if you looked at where those layoffs were taking place, they were taking place in those same names we're talking about now, right, who also went on a hiring spree at the beginning of the pandemic. And the reality is their headcount today is still higher than where it was at the beginning of the pandemic. So it was really just releasing and, and you know lowering headcount based upon the conditions that exist today. So I'm not convinced that we're going to have a recession. And if we are, uh, it's probably not coming in the, in the near term. What are some of your tips to, to investors right now seeing what's happening? Yeah, I mean, listen, we, uh, you know, we've been in constant contact with our, with the families that we serve throughout this whole process. You know, starting with October of 2021, we started reducing, uh, you know, longevity on bonds in anticipation of rate hikes going, uh, taking place in 2022. I think us, like many others, didn't expect them to go up as quickly as they did. But the reality is, you know, most of the families we serve, they're not traders, so they don't need to worry about the day-to-day. -day. The whole idea is let's put together a diversified portfolio. And then as these market events unfold, make minor adjustments that hopefully will lead to major improvements in the long run. So we're not wholeheartedly selling any, you know, selling a whole position or buying. We're looking at the market as a whole, their portfolio as a whole, and where we are in relation to what their personal goals and objectives are. So every family is different. I can't say that we're doing this for everyone because I, I don't think it works that way. So, you know, we have to 
uh, take that under advice and guidance. We take what's going on in the macro world and we apply that to the families that we serve. All right, thank you so much today, Lawrence. Always a pleasure speaking to you. Same, Don, have a great day. Coming up, the Unabomber is now dead. He was notorious for a series of bombings that killed three people and injured many others. The cause of his death is not known. And a Washington judge ruled a women's only spa must admit men who claim to be women. But the spa is pushing back with a new claim. That and more when we come back. A former university professor who ran a nearly two-decade bombing campaign has died in prison. He was known as the Unabomber. Theodore Kaczynski, who ran a 17-year bombing campaign in the U.S. that killed three people and injured 23 others, died on Saturday. He was 81. Kaczynski was a Harvard-educated mathematician and former UC Berkeley math professor. He admitted to committing 16 bombings from 1978 and 1995 and retreated to a shack in the Montana wilderness, becoming known as the Unabomber. A spokesperson for the Federal Bureau of Prisons said he died at the Federal Prison Medical Center in Butner, North Carolina. He was found unresponsive in his cell early Saturday morning and was pronounced dead soon after. The cause of death was not immediately known. A Washington state judge ruled that a female-only spa must accept men if they identify as women. The Olympus Spa offers many services that require patrons to be undressed, and the employees who work on site are all female. The owners who are Christian claim that their constitutional rights and those of their employees and patrons were infringed upon, but a district court judge ruled otherwise, saying that the state law called Washington's Law Against Discrimination, quote, does not discriminate on its face, and it does not by its terms, favor a particular religion or the non-exercise of religion. The owners of the spa say they plan to enter a new complaint in the case. Here to break this down is John Schweppe, the Policy Director of American Principles Project. John Schweppe, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to have you on. Hey, thanks so much for having me. So what are your thoughts on the outcome of this ruling and uh, its impacts? Well, it's obviously extremely disappointing, uh, you know, that in this country, you know, you can't have a Christian business where, uh, you know, you want to be able to protect women from naked biological males uh, running around your, your spa and you're not able to do it. Uh, that seems pretty insane. But that's the ruling of this case is basically that, uh, you know, in a in a nude spa uh, that's, you know, uh, where the owners are Christians and they, they want to adhere to something where they actually have business interests, where a lot of uh, women are canceling their memberships because of this this phenomenon of a of a male trying to get in there. Uh, you know, you're going to have this, and and I think we really need to make sure in future cases, and hopefully the Supreme Court will take this up eventually. This is insanity, right? Women deserve to have their spaces protected. They deserve to be able to, you know, a spa is a place where you're supposed to relax, and it's going to be pretty hard to do that if you have a a naked man running around. And so, uh, hopefully, we'll be able to get different rulings in the future. So what does the significance of this case have on uh, people's constitutional rights uh, to their religious beliefs? Well, I think we've seen that the LGBT movement does not care about religious liberty whatsoever. Um, they're not interested in any sort of compromise. And so these types of cases are going to come up, as we saw with the, 
you know, the Colorado Baker and now here with this uh, uh, spa, you know, it doesn't really matter what your religious beliefs, they're going to try to impose this gender identity ideology on you anyway, almost like it's a religion of its own. And so I think it's really important that we continue to push back on this. We do have a constitution in this country. We do have First Amendment uh, rights. And ultimately, I think the Supreme Court will side uh, with, with the, the right side of history on this. But in the meantime, you know, we got to keep passing laws to prevent this insanity and, and fight the activist judges that are trying to stop it from happening or trying to keep it happening, I should say. Right. So, you know, in several recent court rulings, um, it, the issue is whether sexual, sexual orientation or gender trumps freedom, uh, freedom of religion. Um, do you think religious freedom is at stake here? Absolutely it is. And, and we've seen that. And they're not going to stop. You know, one of the things I think is really significant is that with the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, that's the Colorado Baker, you know, as soon as that case was done, the Colorado Civil Rights Commission uh, kept going after him for different things, right? So it's never going to stop. The persecution's never going to stop. But ultimately, you know, we have to have strong laws that protect people of faith. And this actually, I think, goes even beyond religious liberty, although I think that's a great reason to be able to dissent. Um, but this is something where, you know, it should just be a matter of, of private ownership. This is a private spa for women, and it has a lot of tradition behind it. And if they want to keep it to be a spa for women where men aren't allowed, they should be allowed to do that. We have a long history of sex-segregated uh, spaces, not just in this country, but throughout human history. And uh, suddenly, you know, we have this radical movement trying to upend that, and we should stop it. And so I think it's good that, um, you know, we have a lot of folks across the country who are standing up uh, against this radical ideology, especially as it pushes on kids, and that we need to continue to do so. And now, what's being done uh, to protect religious li liberty in the United States right now? Well, we have some wonderful groups that are really focused on this. Alliance Defending Freedom is one of the best groups in the country at it. Uh, you know, we're continuing to have this fight uh, in the court system. But I think it's also important to note what's happened in politics. And, you know, several years ago, really right after Obergefell, there was no uh, political movement against the LGBT agenda at all within the Republican Party or anywhere. That's really changed in the last couple of years. And now you see that this is, you know, a leading issue that presidential candidates are talking about, that states are passing laws about. And so I'm encouraged by that. And I think as we head into 2024 and beyond, and as we look at future Supreme Court picks, uh, you know, this is going to be an issue of consequence. And hopefully we'll be able to stop this. You know, we see these polls coming out, national polling, showing that uh, voters are fed up with the radical transgender movement. And so we're winning this fight. We just have to keep pressing on. Well, John Schweppe, thank you so much for your time. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Beijing appears to be keeping an eye on a certain naval exercise involving the U.S., Japan, France, and Canada. NTD's Tiffany Meyer has more. The U.S. began the drill in the Philippine Sea Friday, with two carrier strike groups jointly operating for the first time since June 2020. Meanwhile, Chinese media reported that an intel-gathering aircraft flew over Pacific waters east of Taiwan. State-backed newspaper The Global Times published Sunday that the Y-9 cargo plane had been fitted with reconnaissance equipment and likely monitored the drill. Japan's defense ministry also chimed in, saying its troops spotted a Y-9 aircraft in the Pacific on Thursday. A spokesperson said on Monday the ministry was analyzing a piece of equipment attached to the plane that had not been seen before. Chinese media reports that two U.S. aircraft carriers, the USS Nimitz and USS Ronald Reagan, had been operating in the region since Thursday. 
Beijing claims the waters surrounding the Roiku Islands in the Philippine Sea as its own territory. U.S. military encounters in the Indo-Pacific have risen in recent years, with Beijing growing more assertive in the area. Coming up, the DOJ says scams targeting the elderly are happening more and more. Cities in California's Silicon Valley are trying to equip their senior communities with tools to spot scams. Los Angeles is home to one of the most expensive housing markets nationwide, but there's one house that's very affordable with a catch. And a town in France holds one of the biggest medieval festivals in Europe, offering visitors a taste of life in the Middle Ages. Stay tuned for more in just a moment here on NTD News. According to the Department of Justice, financial scams and abuses that target older people are happening more frequently. Communities around the country deal with robocalls and face-to-face -face scams. So NTD's David Lamb heard from the Northern California city of Milpitas to see how they address the issue. The city of Milpitas held a seminar to teach senior citizens on how to avoid getting scammed. Now we also spoke to 73-year-old Lisa Koo who attended the seminar. Locals in their golden years listened attentively and took notes at the Barbara Lee Center. In today's age, scams can come in many shapes and forms. Because of the people getting on, you know, it's easy to get a scam from the people. And that's why we have to be very careful when you're hiring to, you know, some contractor to, to fix the house or something, or when you buy, you know, insurance for car or something. A simple but foundational tip from the seminar was to look up the credentials of contractors and to be cautious if they offer many freebies like free meals and gifts. You check it before. Don't let them scam you. Okay, you buy the insurance, you know, they cover everything and you got, you know, the... Uh, the good gift or something like that. Ku said she appreciates the opportunity for attending the training, which was supported by public officials. I hope you'll find this seminar informative and may never become a victim of fraud or scams or bad business practices. We are in a digital world. You know, everything's on the internet, your credit cards, your banking, your insurance, everything is online. And many seniors, you know, coming from a different era, are learning how to uh, use the internet tools to navigate the system. I've heard a lot happening around, especially um, the senior citizens being targeted um, for ages now. I mean, because of the technology, the AI, I mean, they are not um, really resourceful about being up to the mark with the, uh, you know, the things happening around. The DOJ reports that fraud and romance scams targeting older adults resulted in over $184 million in losses in 2018. It's very difficult because I'm a senior myself. What we want to do is to give the residents in our city some tools to, to prevent being a victim of of any scams, whether it's insurance, whether it's, you know, fixing their homes, contractor. Officials hope to hold more similar seminars in the future. In Milpitas, California, David Lamb, NTD News. Los Angeles is known to be one of the most expensive housing markets in the country. 
However, there's one home in L.A. County that most people will find affordable. But there's a catch. The house is about the size of a two-car garage. NTD's Christina Corona tells us more. Los Angeles locals are buzzing about a one-of-a-kind property which has just hit the market. This gem of a home is hidden away and tucked under a bridge in the city of Alhambra, just a short distance from downtown L.A. Douglas Lee, a local realtor with Compass Real Estate, tells us just how unique this tiny abode is. It's 462 square feet on an 1,800-square-foot lot. It sits right here on top of a bridge on the border of Alhambra and San Gabriel. The property was last purchased in 2005 and at a price almost anyone could afford, just $72,000. The owners bought the home with a very specific use in mind. They intended to use it as like a man cave, but then it ended up just being storage. Whether you call it a man cave, a bachelor pad, or a storage unit, one thing's for sure. It comes with a variety of perks, but it does need some TLC. Um, it has a great rooftop uh, deck area. It is a bit of a cosmetic fixer. This one-bedroom, one-bathroom living space might be ideal for those on a budget, a first-time homebuyer, or someone who just wants a little privacy. According to Realtor.com, the average price of a home in the city of Alhambra will set you back about $800,000. Norma Vega, a local resident, says she's looking for an alternative to high-priced housing and she was shocked to learn there was a home like this for sale right here in her own backyard. I have crossed the street hundreds of times. Never before did I think there was a house underneath this pavement here. It's not a mansion, not suitable for an extended family, and its curbside appeal is marginal, but... But really cute, charming. I think only one or possibly a couple could fit, but, um, you know, it, it's, it's quirky. Homes come in all shapes and sizes. Home is where the heart is. And for the person who buys this home, the mortgage won't break the bank. Christina Corona, NTD News, Alhambra. The Middle Ages haven't gone out of style, at least not for the 100,000 people who visited a medieval city near Paris this past weekend. They had the opportunity to explore medieval dance, crafts, and clothing. NTD's France correspondent David Vivez takes us there. In everyday life, Martin Grave is an IT project manager. But every once in a while, another side of him shows up, a medieval knight of the Crusades. The 13th century was France's golden age because we had great kings like Philip Augustus and Saint Louis. We're right in the middle of the Crusades period, too. I've been fascinated by history ever since I was a kid. Since 1984, the fortified medieval town of Provence has held one of the biggest medieval festivals in Europe. And like Grave, around 105,000 visitors came to Provence over the weekend to get a taste of Europe in the Middle Ages. The festival features full-scale historical reenactments of the Champagne fairs and camps and features medieval craftspeople, builders and dancers. And the music can be a thousand years old, but it's still very effective at getting people to dance. What we love is, of course, performing the songs together with friendly musicians. And the interaction with the audience is always great. We try to put a smile on people's faces and bring them happiness. There are many craftspeople displaying products from the old days, art objects, fabrics, spices, jewelry, costumes and musical instruments. Some are passionate and practice their skills in associations, 
Others make a living from their crafts. Blacksmithing is a passion. There's no way to explain it. It comes from the inside. It's like alchemy, using the elements, water, earth and fire. You start working on the metal, you transform it into something else. It's like someone who's writing, who starts with a blank page. This arrow here will be used to tear the sails of the boats, to slow them down and immobilize them. Here you have the knuckle cutter. This is an arrowhead used to stop cavalry. Here's the incendiary arrowhead. It's used to set fire to anything that can burn. And another possible use was as a poison, to poison a well. Provence and its fortifications were built during the 9th century, and the city was designated a UNESCO World Heritage Site in 2001. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Jack Bradley. Good night.